Story nine of The Man Without a Country and Other Tales by Edward Everett Hale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story nine The Children of the Public, Chapter four The Crisis, Part two. Two hours I left Fausta in the rocking chair, which there the public had provided for her. Then I returned, sadly enough. No tidings of Rowdy Rob, none of trunk, Bible, money, letter, medal, or anything. Still was my district sergeant hopeful, and as always respectful. But I was hopeless this time, and I knew that the next day Fausta would be plunging into the war with intelligence houses and advertisements. For the night I was determined that she should spend it in my ideal respectable boarding-house. On my way downtown I stopped in at one or two shops to make inquiries, and satisfied myself where I would take her. Still I thought it wisest that we should go after tea, and another cross-street baker, and another pair of rolls, and another tap at the Croton, provided that repast for us. Then I told Fausta of the respectable boarding-house, and that she must go there. She did not say no, but she did say she would rather not spend the evening there. There must be some place open for us, said she. There, there is a church bell. The church is always home. Let us come there. So to evening meeting we went, startling the sexton by arriving an hour early. If there were any who wondered what was the use of that Wednesday evening service, we did not. In a dark gallery pew we sat, she at one end, I at the other, and if the whole truth be told, each of us fell asleep at once, and slept till the heavy organ tones taught us that the service had begun. A hundred or more people had straggled in then, and the preacher, good soul, he took for his text, Doth not God care for the ravens? I cannot describe the ineffable feeling of home that came over me in that dark pew of that old church. I had never been in so large a church before. I had never heard so heavy an organ before. Perhaps I had heard better preaching, but never any that came to my occasions more. But it was none of these things which moved me. It was the fact that we were just where we had a right to be. No impudent waiter could ask us why we were sitting there, nor any petulant policeman proposed that we should push on. It was God's house, and because His, it was His children's. All this feeling of repose grew upon me, and as it proved, upon Fausta also. For when the service was ended, and I ventured to ask her whether she also had this sense of home and rest, she assented so eagerly that I proposed, though with hesitation, a notion which had crossed me that I should leave her there. I cannot think, I said, of any possible harm that could come to you before morning. Do you know, I had thought of that very same thing, but I did not dare tell you, she said. Was not I glad that she had considered me her keeper? But I only said, at the respectable boarding-house you might be annoyed by questions. And no one will speak to me here. I know that from Goody Two-Shoes. 
I will be here, said I, at sunrise in the morning. And so I bade her good-bye, insisting on leaving in the pew my own greatcoat. I knew she might need it before morning. I walked out as the sexton closed the door below on the last of the downstairs worshippers. He passed along the aisles below with his long poker which screwed down the gas. I saw at once that he had no intent of exploring the galleries. But I loitered outside till I saw him lock the doors and depart. And then, happy in the thought that Miss Jones was in the safest place in New York, as comfortable as she was the night before, and much more comfortable than she had been any night upon the canal, I went in search of my own lodging. To the respectable boarding-house? Not a bit, reader. I had no shillings for respectable or disrespectable boarding-houses. I asked the first policeman where his district station was. I went into its office and told the captain that I was green in the city, had got no work and no money. In truth, I had left my purse in Miss Jones's charge, and a five-cent piece, which I showed the chief, was all I had. He said no word but to bid me go up two flights and turn into the first bunk I found. I did so, and in five minutes was asleep in a better bed than I had slept in for nine days. That was what the public did for me that night. I, too, was safe. I am making this story too long, but with that night and its anxieties the end has come. At sunrise I rose and made my easy toilet. I bought and ate my roll, varying the brand from yesterday's. I bought another with a lump of butter and an orange for Fausta. I left my portmanteau at the station while I rushed to the sexton's house, told his wife I had left my gloves in church the night before, as was the truth, and easily obtained from her the keys. In a moment I was in the vestibule, locked in, was in the gallery, and there found Fausta, just awake, as she declared, from a comfortable night, reading her morning lesson in the Bible, and sure, she said, that I should soon appear. Nor ghost nor wraith had visited her. I spread for her a brown paper tablecloth on the table in the vestibule. I laid out her breakfast for her, called her, and wondered at her toilet. How is it that women always make themselves appear as neat and finished as if there were no conflict, dust, or wrinkle in the world? Here Fausta adds in this manuscript a parenthesis, to say that she folded her undersleeves neatly and her collar before she slept, and put them between the cushions upon which she slept. In the morning they had been pressed without a sad iron. She finished her repast. I opened the church door for five minutes. She passed out when she had enough examined the monuments, and at a respectable distance I followed her. We joined each other and took our accustomed morning walk. But then she resolutely said good-bye for the day. She would find work before night, work and a home, and I must do the same. Only when I pressed her to let me know of her success, she said she would meet me at the Astor Library just before it closed. No, she would not take my money. Enough that for twenty-four hours she had been my guest, 
when she had found her aunt and told her story, they would insist on repaying this hospitality. Hospitality, dear reader, which I had dispensed at the charge of six cents. Have you ever treated Miranda for a day and found the charge so low? When I urged other assistance, she said resolutely, No. In fact, she had already made an appointment at two, she said, and she must not waste the day. I also had an appointment at two, for it was at that hour that Burham was to distribute the cyclopedias at Castle Garden. The Emigrant Commission had not yet seized it for their own. I spent the morning in asking vainly for masons fresh from Europe and for work in cabinet shops. I found neither, and so wrought my way to the appointed place, where, instead of such wretched birds in the bush, I was to get one so contemptible in my hand. Those who remember Jenny Lynn's first triumph night at Castle Gardens have some idea of the crowd as it filled gallery and floor of that immense hall when I entered. I had given no thought to the machinery of this folly. I only know that my ticket bade me be there at 2 p.m. this day. But as I drew near, the throng, the bands of policemen, the long queues of persons entering, reminded me that here was an affair of ten thousand persons, and also that Mr. Burham was not unwilling to make it as showy, perhaps as noisy, an affair as was respectable, by way of advertising future excursions and distributions. I was led to seat number 3,671, with a good deal of parade, and, when I came there, I found I was very much of a prisoner. I was late, or rather on the stroke of two. Immediately, almost, Mr. Burham rose in the front and made a long speech about his liberality, and the public's liberality, and everybody's liberality in general and the method of the distribution in particular. The mayor and four or five other well-known and respectable gentlemen were kind enough to be present to guarantee the fairness of the arrangements. At the suggestion of the mayor and the police, the doors would now be closed that no persons might interrupt the ceremony till it was ended, and the distribution of the cyclopedias would at once go forward in the order in which the lots were drawn, earliest numbers securing the earliest impressions, which, as Mr. Burham almost regretted to say, were a little better than the latest. After these had been distributed, two figures would be drawn, one green and one red, to indicate the fortunate lady and gentleman who would receive respectively the profits which had arisen from this method of selling the cyclopedias after the expenses of printing and distribution had been covered and after the magazines had been ordered great cheering followed this announcement from all but me here i had shut myself up in this humbug hall for heaven knew how long on the most important day of my life I would have given up willingly my cyclopedia and my chance at the profits for the certainty of seeing Fausta at five o'clock. If I did not see her then, what might befall her, and when might I see her again? An hour before, this certainty was my own, 
Now it was only mine by my liberating myself from this prison. Still I was encouraged by seeing that everything was conducted like clockwork. From literally a hundred stations they were distributing the books. We formed ourselves into queues as we pleased, drew our numbers, and then presented ourselves at the bureau, ordered our magazines, and took our cyclopedias. It would be done, at that rate, by half-past four. An omnibus might bring me to the park, and a bowery car do the rest in time. After a vain discussion for the right of exit with one or two of the attendants, I abandoned myself to this hope, and began studying my cyclopedia. It was sufficiently amusing to see ten thousand people resign themselves to the same task, and affects to be unconcerned about the green and red figures which were to divide the profit. I tried to make out who were as anxious to get out of that tawdry den as I was. Four o'clock struck, and the distribution was not done. I began to be very impatient. What if Fausta fell into trouble? I knew, or hoped I knew, that she would struggle to the Astor Library as to her only place of rescue and refuge, her asylum. What if I failed her there, I who had pretended to be her protector? Protector indeed, she would say, if she knew I was at a theatre witnessing the greatest folly of the age, and if I did not meet her to-day, when should I meet her? If she found her aunt, how should I find her? If she did not find her, good God, that was worse, where might she not be before twelve hours were over? Then the fatal trunk. I had told the police agent he might send it to the St. Nicholas, because I had to give him some address. But Fausta did not know this, and the St. Nicholas people knew nothing of us. I grew more and more excited, and when at last my next neighbor told me that it was half-past four, I rose and insisted on leaving my seat. Two ushers with blue sashes almost held me down. They showed me the whole assembly sinking into quiet. In fact, at that moment, Mr. Burham was begging everyone to be seated. I would not be seated. I would go to the door. I would go out. "'Go, if you please,' said the usher next it contemptuously. And I looked, and there was no handle. Yet this was not a dream. It is the way they arrange the doors, in halls where they choose to keep people in their places. I could have collared that grinning blue sash. I did tell him I would wring his precious neck for him if he did not let me out. I said I would sue him for false imprisonment. I would have a writ of habeas corpus. "'Habeas corpus be damned,' said the officer, with an irreverent disrespect to the palladium. "'If you are not more civil, sir, I will call the police, of whom we have plenty. You say you want to go out? You are keeping everybody in.' And, in fact, at that moment the clear voice of the mayor was announcing that they would not go on until there was perfect quiet and I felt that I was imprisoning all these people, not they me. "'Child of the public,' said my morning genius, "'are you better than other men?' So I sneaked back to seat number 3,671, 
amid the contemptuous and reproachful looks and sneers of my more respectable neighbors, who had sat where they were told to do. We must be through in a moment, and perhaps Fausta would be late also, if only the aster would keep open after sunset. How often have I wished that since, and for less reasons! Silence thus restored, Mr. A., the mayor, led forward his little daughter, blindfolded her, and bade her put her hand into a green box, from which she drew out a green ticket. He took it from her and read, in his clear voice again, Number 2,973. By this time we all knew where the two thousands sat. Then nine hundreds were not far from the front, so that it was not far that that frightened girl, dressed all in black and heavily veiled, had to walk, who answered to this call. Mr. A. met her, helped her up the stair upon the stage, took from her her ticket, and read Jerusha Stillingfleet of Yellow Springs, who at her death, it seems, transferred this right to the bearer. The disappointed 9,999 joined in a rapturous cheer, each man and woman, to show that he or she was not disappointed. The bearer spoke with Mr. Burham in answer to his questions, and with a good deal of ostentation he opened a check-book, filled a check, and passed it to her, she signing a receipt as she took it, and transferring to him her ticket. So far, in dumb show, all was well. What was more to my purpose, it was rapid, for we should have been done in five minutes more, but that some devil tempted some loafer in a gallery to cry, Face! Face! Miss Stillingfleet's legatee was still heavily veiled. In one horrid minute that whole amphitheatre, which seemed to me then more cruel than the Colosseum ever was, rang out with a cry of face, face. I tried the counter-cry of shame, shame, but I was in disgrace among my neighbors, and a counter-cry never takes, as its prototype does, either. At first, on the stage, they affected not to hear or understand. Then there was a courtly whisper between Mr. Burham and the lady, but Mr. A., the mayor, and the respectable gentleman instantly interfered. It was evident that she would not unveil, and that they were prepared to endorse her refusal. In a moment more she curtsied to the assembly. The mayor gave her his arm, and led her out through a side door. Oh, the yell that rose up then! The whole assembly stood up, and, as if they had lost some vested right, hooted and shrieked, Back! Back! Face! Face! Mr. A. returned, made as if he would speak, came forward to the very front, and got a moment's silence. It is not in the bond, gentlemen, said he. The young lady is unwilling to unveil, and we must not compel her. Face! Face! was the only answer, and oranges from upstairs flew about his head and struck upon the table, an omen only fearful from what it prophesied. Then there was such a row for five minutes as I hope I may never see or hear again. People kept their places, fortunately, under a vague impression that they should forfeit some magic rights if they left those numbered seats. 
but when for a moment a file of policemen appeared in the orchestra a whole volley of cyclopedias fell like rain upon their chief with a renewed cry of face face at this juncture with a good deal of knowledge of popular feeling mr a led forward his child again frightened to death the poor thing was and crying he tied his handkerchief round her eyes hastily and took her to the red box for a minute the house was hushed a cry of down down and every one took his place as the child gave the red ticket to her father he read it as before number three thousand six hundred and seventy one i heard the words as if he did not speak them all excited by the delay in the row by the injustice to the stranger and the personal injustice of everybody to me i did not know for a dozen seconds that every one was looking towards our side of the house nor was it till my next neighbor with the watch said go you fool that i was aware that three thousand six hundred and seventy one was i even then as i stepped down the passage and up the steps my only feeling was that i should get out of this horrid trap and possibly find miss jones lingering near the aster not by any means that i was invited to take a check for five thousand dollars there was not much cheering women never mean to cheer of course the men had cheered the green ticket but they were mad with the red one i gave up my ticket signed my receipt and took my check shook hands with mr a and mr burham and turned to bow to the mob for mob i must call it now but the cheers died away a few people tried to go out perhaps but there was nothing now to retain any in their seats as before and the generality rose pressed down the passages and howled face face i thought for a moment that i ought to say something but they would not hear me and after a moment's pause my passion to depart overwhelmed me i muttered some apology to the gentleman and left the stage by the stage door i had forgotten that to castle garden there can be no back entrance i came to door after door which were all locked it was growing dark evidently the sun was set and i knew the library door would be shut at sunset the passages were very obscure all around me rang this horrid yell of the mob in which all that i could discern was the cry face face at last as i groped round i came to a practicable door i entered a room where the western sunset glare dazzled me i was not alone the veiled lady in black was there but the instant she saw me she sprang towards me flung herself into my arms and cried felix is it you you are indeed my protector it was miss jones it was fausta she was the legatee of miss stillingfleet my first thought was oh if that beggarly usher had let me go will i ever ever think i have better rights than the public again i took her in my arms i carried her to the sofa i could hardly speak for excitement then i did say that i had been wild with terror that i had feared i had lost her and lost her forever that to have lost that interview 
would have been worse to me than death, for unless she knew that I loved her better than man ever loved woman, I could not face a lonely night and another lonely day. My dear, dear child, I said, you may think me wild, but I must say this. It has been pent up too long. Say what you will, she said after a moment, in which still I held her in my arms. She was trembling so that she could not have sat upright alone. Say what you will, if only you do not tell me to spend another day alone. And I kissed her, and I kissed her, and I kissed her, and I said, Never, darling, God helping me till I die. How long we sat there I do not know. Neither of us spoke again. For one, I looked out on the sunset and the bay. We had but just time to rearrange ourselves in positions more independent, when Mr. A. came in, this time in alarm, to say, Miss Jones, we must get you out of this place, or we must hide you somewhere. I believe before God they will storm this passage and pull the house about our ears. He said this, not conscious as he began that I was there. At that moment, however, I felt as if I could have met a million men. I started forward and passed him, saying, Let me speak to them. I rushed upon the stage, fairly pushing back two or three bullies who were already upon it. I sprang upon the table, kicking down the red box as I did so, so that the red tickets fell on the floor and on the people below. One stuck in an old man's spectacles in a way which made the people in the galleries laugh. A laugh is a great blessing at such a moment. Curiosity is another. Three loud words spoken like thunder do a good deal more. And after three words the house was hushed to hear me. I said, Be fair to the girl. She has no father nor mother. She has no brother nor sister. She is alone in the world, with nobody to help her but the public, and me. The audacity of the speech brought out a cheer, and we should have come off in triumph when some rowdy, the original face-man, I suppose, said, And who are you? If the laugh went against me now, I was lost, of course. Fortunately, I had no time to think, and I said without thinking, I am the child of the public, and her betrothed husband. Oh, heavens, what a yell of laughter, of hurrahings, of satisfaction with a denouement, rang through the house, and showed that all was well. Burham caught the moment and started his hand, this time successfully, I believe, with See the Conquering Hero. The doors, of course, had been open long before. Well-disposed people saw they need stay no longer. Ill-disposed people dared not stay. The blue-coated men with buttons sauntered on the stage in groups, and I suppose the worst rowdies disappeared as they saw them. I had made my single speech, and for the moment I was a hero. I believe the mayor would have liked to kiss me. Burham almost did. They overwhelmed me with thanks and congratulations. All these I received as well as I could. Somehow I did not feel at all surprised. Everything was as it should be. I scarcely thought of leaving the stage myself, till, to my surprise, the mayor asked me to go home with him to dinner. 
Then I remembered that we were not to spend the rest of our lives in Castle Garden. I blundered out something about Miss Jones, that she had no escort except me, and pressed into her room to find her. A group of gentlemen was around her. Her veil was back now. She was very pale, but very lovely. Have I said that she was beautiful as heaven? She was the queen of the room, modestly and pleasantly receiving their felicitations that the danger was over, and owning that she had been very much frightened. Until, she said, my friend Mr. Carter was fortunate enough to guess that I was here. How he did it, she said, turning to me, is yet an utter mystery to me. She did not know till then that it was I who had shared with her the profits of the cyclopedias. As soon as we could excuse ourselves, I asked someone to order a carriage. I sent to the ticket office for my valise, and we rode to the St. Nicholas. I fairly laughed as I gave the hackman at the hotel door what would have been my last dollar and a half only two hours before. I entered Miss Jones' name and my own. The clerk looked and said inquiringly, Is it Miss Jones' trunk which came this afternoon? I followed his finger to see the trunk on the marble floor. Rowdy Rob had deserted it, having seen, perhaps, a detective when he reached Piermont. The trunk had gone to Albany, had found no owner, and had returned by the day-boat of that day. Fausta went to her room, and I sent her supper after her. One kiss and good-night was all that I got from her then. In the morning, said she, you shall explain. It was not yet seven. I went to my own room and dressed, and tendered myself at the mayor's just before his gay party sat down to dine. I met, for the first time in my life, men whose books I had read, and whose speeches I had by heart, and women whom I have since known to honor and in the midst of this brilliant group, so excited had Mr. A. been in telling the strange story of the day, I was, for the hour, the lion. I led Mrs. A. to the table. I made her laugh very heartily by telling her of the usher's threats to me, and mine to him, and of the disgrace into which I fell among the three thousand six hundreds. I had never been at any such party before but I found it was only rather simpler and more quiet than most parties I had seen, that its good breeding was exactly that of dear Betsy Myers. As the party broke up, Mrs. A. said to me, Mr. Carter, I am sure you are tired with all this excitement. You say you are a stranger here. Let me send round for your trunk to the St. Nicholas, and you shall spend the night here. I know I can make you a better bed than they. I thought as much myself, and assented. In half an hour more I was in bed in Mrs. A.'s best room. I shall not sleep better, said I to myself, than I did last night. That was what the public did for me that night. I was safe again. End of Story 9 Chapter 4 Part 2